Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. And today we will be interviewing Brooke. Hi, I'm Brooke. This is part two of our interview with Brooke. Trigger warning, we talk about suicide stats from minute six, second 43 to minute seven, second 45. And then we talk about suicide ideation from minute 11, second 45, to minute 12, second 25. Now, we are going to jump right back in where we left off when we concluded part one of Brooke's interview. Here's part two. Again, just some terms. I keep saying neurotypical. That means as someone who does not experience a neurodivergence, such as being autistic, ADHD, learning disabilities, or a psychological divergence. And psychological divergence, that means mental illness, but because the community is trying to depathologize everything, illness isn't preferred. It, it causes further stigma. There's no such thing as high or low functioning. We don't use functioning labels. We consider uh, everybody to have different support needs that fluctuate, uh, nothing static. And we don't use terms such as illness, disorder, traits, or conditions, as these are stigmatizing and further false narratives about our experience. It results in people being further harmed by medical and social institutions. To quote Dr. Chloe Farhar, there is no autism, only autistic people. So we can't be separated from our experience. There is no neurotypical person underneath. Our soul is autistic. Our brain is autistic. Neurotypical mm-hmm. seem to like to separate people from the, from themselves. Mm. You know, it feels like they're tearing apart your soul sometimes. Yeah, yep. I'm almost envious of the autistic community right now just because I feel like you guys have created this mutually supportive network with one another and I don't necessarily see that or at least I haven't found resources and communities like that for borderline but maybe I'm just not looking in the right places. Well if I can mention most autistic women were originally diagnosed with borderline. Oh wow. Yeah so it's considered a really kind of funky diagnosis. I would really look into see if you are actually autistic. Huh. Yeah, because it's often considered the very first misdiagnosis for autistic women. Interesting. Because I, wow. when you were talking about meltdowns, I was thinking about a really vivid memory in my body of a time just a couple years ago. I mean, I, fully an adult and everything, and I just had this executive dysfunction in Target, got a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. relating to my family buying a particular Christmas gift for another family member. For some reason, there was so much anxiety in that particular present, and I don't know what it was, but I just broke down and couldn't be reasoned with. In my head, I'm like, okay, really, if they buy this, it doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal just because you don't like this gift, you know? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. as you're not receiving the gift, why does it matter, you know? But that voice in my head was, like, tiny and in the back of my head, and I just, like, I don't know, I felt frozen. Long story short, they had to 
dragged me out of Target, like crying and screaming, and people were looking at me, and I yeah. hated it, and I was yelling at them to stop looking at me, and I was, I was like 23. <laughs> yeah, that anyway. that sounds like a meltdown. You know, as autistic people get older, they'll sometimes try to hold it in, and that just causes yeah. a shutdown. Hmm. My mom would call them tantrums when I was a kid. Um, yeah, most neurotypical people, they think that. It's being manipulative when it's not. It's a seizure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you've given me a lot to think about on a personal level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to, again, go back to, I was going to mention masking, which is yeah when we subconsciously hide being autistic and we suppress a natural way of being, Neurotypical spaces, they often leave autistics traumatized. You feel extremely alone and trapped being around that different culture, and everyone expects you to act just like them, but you can't, so you get punished. Many autistics develop a complex post-traumatic stress from this. And so our natural ways of expression, they get ridiculed and shut down, and they become dangerous points of difference. So we uh, subconsciously Mm -hmm. learn to hide our physical needs and mask them. And that's autistic masking. To paraphrase Karen Rose, who is an autistic advocate and researcher, a schism develops from the trauma of being harmed and rejected by people. And you start to dissociate yourself from your true self. And your mind builds this identity around traits that are more acceptable to society. The majority of autistic people don't know that they mask until they learn about it through the autistic community. And then the ability to mask Mm. goes away in times of stress, burnout, and shutdowns. Yeah, that is the major drain on our physical energy and being able to live our daily lives. In fact, that's one of the main reasons that autistic people become ill and stressed and, and die early. Yeah, it's a major stress trying to hide your true self all the time just yeah. to fit in. One of the main reasons I I wanted to come on to Holy Human is you know to make people aware that high rate of suicide amongst autistic people is 11 times the global population. Even in Utah, there was a 20-year study conducted. It was published in 2019, and it showed that autistic women were three times more likely, and that could also be true for non-binary people as well. Yeah. They're three times more likely than their neurotypical counterparts. And then the worldwide studies conducted in Sweden and the UK showed that autistic people were 11 times more likely to die by suicide. In 2017, the American Journal of Public Health released a study saying that the average age of death for autistic individuals was 36. And this was due both to suicide and general lack of health care and social support. I'm turning 36 this year, and that hits really close to home. Right now, I'm just trying to live as well as I can and not have as much stress as I used to have in my life. And and again, it's been proven uh, time and again in various studies that it's far easier and beneficial for neurotypicals to learn about autistic people and how to accommodate us rather than us always accommodating Mm -hmm. them. There's also a huge problem with police brutality and Mm -hmm. 
when autistic people are having meltdowns, people call the police. And I feel like a lot of the stories I've heard about autistic people dying young um, were related to police involvement. Oh, yes, most definitely. Again, there's just not that much information out in the mainstream on how to, you know, navigate us and understand what yeah. is actually going on. Neurotypicals, they, they use what's called thin slice judgments in decision making rather than observation and researching. And that leaves us at the mercy of their unconscious biases. And we get judged more harshly for it. The University of Glasgow revealed in one of, in a study that if there's a group of neurotypicals judging autistic people, like for jobs or just giving their first impressions, the neurotypical group, without knowing anyone in the other group was autistic, would consistently rate autistics negatively just from seeing their photo or hearing their voice. Mm. Yeah. So for any autistics listening, your suspicion of NTs instantly disliking you is correct and proven empirically. And that's just something that we, as a community, have always felt, that we're automatically judged more harshly and disliked. Even when we're trying our best to make friendships and connect with people, a lot of people just don't want to. And uh, yeah. the way that that comes out is NTs, they talk about feeling like bad vibes or feeling like we're off. For a lot of NTs, I would say that you need to just stop and think. Especially if you're a member of the church. Yeah. We have a covenant promise that we've made mm-hmm. to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, to be a friend to everyone, regardless of who they are or what abilities or disabilities or diversities they have. That's literally a covenant we've made. So Mm -hmm. to see it happen in the church, to see people be outcasted or bullied even for ways that they're different, it's completely the opposite of what Christ wants for his people. Yeah, yeah, we have the framework. We have a lot of the good ideas. We just need to physically implement them in the way that we socialize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you have more time, you haven't gone into a lot of your own experiences growing up in the church, and you shared a wonderful experience with us. Would you mind sharing that? Sure. Yeah, I know the autistic community, it's a whole universe, and it, I, you know, I could keep talking on that, but. You know, being pathologically avoidant, it's a little bit more intense inside for me with church, with church culture. So um, with my experience with church is that it was very much focused on the busyness, productivity culture. And for me, that led to um, this major burnout uh, most of the time trying to keep up. It was just uh, too much. The thing I have to explain a little bit is the the dysphoria that I constantly live with. In the PDA community, we kind of coined this term, uh, living dysphoria. It means feeling half alive and half dead, uh, feeling that life is a heavy burden and the ultimate demand, and you want to end it, but then the act and the death becomes too much of a demand as well and it's a cycle (laughs) 
and it uh, a lot of us have like fascinations with death because of it and so this started when I was seven and like my relationship with God is really intense because we're told that God is a person a physical person that we need to get to know and being a PDA means that I really focus on people and I really want to get to know them and know everything about them and, and like all their personal history and information and so that I can really have a relationship with them and for most people that is way too intense but you know it, it's God it's a challenge and mm-hmm. you know we're told to do that and my first prayer to God was about would he take me back because I was feeling so much pain and rejection from people that I didn't want to live, you know, have a a life like that. And this is when I was seven, eight. And so I gave my first prayer and it was, and the feeling that I got was that I would have help and strength with that. You know, I just remember feeling a, a resolve. I felt like my life really kind of turned toward my my interests and my passions. And I felt that, you know, life would be okay and that being baptized would uh, give me that help and strength. And, you know, it means kind of living with life feeling like there's a heavy beauty to it. You know, I feel like God gives autistic people our passions in such intensity because uh, he knew we would need it. Again, I keep saying that our passions are our life support, our oxygen. Mm -hmm. And because we feel so much anguish over the world and its problems that we need to be able to feel love and joy with equal strength. My going through through church trying to make, you know, fit that neurotypical mold that I feel like we're always pushed into to even be thinking the right things and doing the right things. and. Yeah, it's way too demanding. And so I was always, because, you know, PDA, I had a lot of intrusive thoughts, and they were pretty wild, and I used to feel guilty about those. Because my my personality, like, being inside, I feel like I'm just a multi-layered kaleidoscope that constantly rearranges just the different aspects of my personality. So I cannot be consistent. I cannot be kept hold to promises unless there's something that I really, really want to do. And because there's a lot of moodiness and and irritability, I hear a lot of, like, judgment in the church of, oh, if you can't have patience or you can't have impulse control or, or this or that, it, it gets judged really badly. Like We moralize mm-hmm. a lot of neurodivergent behavior that just shouldn't be moralized because it's not the person's fault. It, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. If you have impulse control and can't have patience, it's not something everybody actually is able to do. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of this judgment was just really building up until... I had a major shutdown at 14, and I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't handle coming to church. I had dropped out of high school for a while, and the big spiritual experience at that point was, you know, I was laying in bed, and my internal critic was kind of shaming me and saying, well, you must be a terrible person, a horrible person, and to not be able to fit in, to not even be able to live 
with other people or go to church and and be this type of person that the church keeps saying that I have to be. So it was really making me feel a lot of physical pain, like really, really hurt and painful, like heartache. And so Mm -hmm. I was laying in bed one Sunday just being in that funk and um, not knowing what to do. I was like 17 and there wasn't anything in psychology yet about being able to have an inner critic, you know, those thoughts. There wasn't a lot about that. And so I felt that maybe it was Satan, you know, trying to destroy me because that was my only frame of reference then. And so um, I was laying in bed feeling like that. And then from above somewhere, I heard get up and go to church. And I heard it three times. It was, you know, a piercing, clear voice, but it was gentle, you know, but it felt like, you know, thunder, like like it's described in the, in the scriptures. And so after a minute, I felt like some strength returned, some kind of semblance of myself, and I decided to act on that and, and get up and get ready and walk down to the Lord's Afternoon Sacrament meeting afterward and I was really emotional and shaky and I got through that meeting because it was mainly a church for the homeless and elderly families downtown Salt Lake City. So I I went upstairs to the overflow room that overlooks the chapel and when the singing and prayers came I broke down and cried and I felt like the Holy Spirit with me and I felt loved and I didn't feel broken. And so gradually I I kept going, being able to feel the spirit again. It really, you know, it felt like I had passed through fire and darkness and survived. The reason why I could really feel the spirit and love in that word was because there wasn't any hierarchy. There, like, I felt like Mm -hmm. the spirit was unbounded because there wasn't any of the things that you feel in suburban family wards where there are always you know, preoccupied with other things. The the majority of the people in that ward were they're mostly homeless and uh, clearly uh, neurodivergent and experiencing uh, poor mental health. And there was no demands put on me. They just wanted to fellowship and they were happy that I came. Mm-hmm. You know, and these were like the poorest people that everybody thinks horribly about. You know, just the worst things. And so most people... They don't experience feeling hated by the world. And they take it for granted that the world loves them. The world loves able-bodied, neurotypical people who who look and fit a certain mold. So feeling love for a neurodivergent person, it often is a dream. Because we're made to feel so unloved and hated by society constantly that you know, our existence and contributions are erased and, mm-hmm. and you know, we're killed in history, you know, and we're not even understood. A lot of people don't take the time to understand us, and that really makes us feel, like, invisible and unloved. So God feeling love for me at that time and feeling his love when I felt unlovable was life-changing. It really made me feel like I could hang in there and continue trying to help other people because 
you know, I really, I wish I could give that feeling to every disabled and neurodivergent person to help them feel God's love because, you know, God knows we need it. I love that. I just, I felt so strongly connected to what you just said. I have literally one of my best friends who is experiencing homelessness right now. And, Mm -hmm. and I know, I mean, I'm not going to get into that, but I, I, I respect him so much and I, um, sorry, I worry about him, but I also, I know that if the world actually listened to him and accepted him, he, he would, he has so much to contribute. He has so much to teach people. And so I really connect with what you're saying. Sorry. No, don't apologize. You're being honest. I appreciate that. Anyway, so I hope I hope we can continue to build communities and really I hope we can build wards that are replicas of that model of a ward that you attended in downtown Salt Lake. Like and there there's a big homelessness debate in downtown Salt Lake right now. I have friends who are involved in that activism and anyway. Yeah, it is ironic that it's the place you experienced that well, not ironic, that's not the right word. It's insightful that the place that you experienced that was a place that people, you know, those groups of people outside of church, people would say they're the outcasts, you know. Um, On my mission, there was a bishop. We Sister training leaders were allowed to attend ward councils on occasion, depending on the ward. Um, Elders were always allowed. (laughs) I just have to throw that out there. (laughs) Um, That's a different conversation. Uh, this ward that we were allowed to attend ward council, the bishop, he, because we were new to ward council and we were new missionaries in the area, he kind of said, like, as an aside, he was like, you know, this is a different kind of ward because of the needs of the people in this ward. And in the stake, it happened to be zoned in an area where there was more poverty. And he kind of said it as a joke. You know, this ward's a little challenging. This ward's a little different. And I'm like, isn't this like <laughs> the ideal ward? This is where we really find, mm-hmm. you know, the people that are honest about their testimony, that are seeking God. And to say it as a joke, like uh, when I say it, I'm, I'm not explaining this well. He said it like we were a different ward because we like he was mentioning like finances from the stake. This ward got more money from the stake because the members needed more money and there was all these ministering assignments. Well, ministering wasn't a thing at the time. There was all these like home teaching assignments and it just felt like it was so much work for him to be the bishop. That's kind of what he was saying in that moment. Like this isn't the normal ward. If I was a bishop in a different ward, it would be easier kind of thing. Yeah, it's really disrespectful. Oh, like, oh, that was hard. And I'm like, what a wasted opportunity. This is where it matters. This is where the gospel matters and where people can really see it change lives. And to waste that or to make fun of it or joke about it, I that just oh, it, it boils me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's the social Darwinism that I'm mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. People just yeah. see themselves as better. It is really sad. It, it just alienates everybody. Yeah, it's wonderful that that ward was where you found that power and that strength in God. God sent you there to have that experience, you know, like 
there is power in establishing a safe community like that. And I, that's my hope that each ward is able to harness that power in a helpful way to really honestly make it an inclusive place for any, any person. I kind of feel like with, with some of the progressive podcasts that we've been listening to and, and the community that we've been involved with, I feel like we're kind of creating our own little ward, which is kind of cool. I, I'm down for it. <laughs> Let's create our non-hierarchical, diversity-friendly ward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sociology has always shown that it's people's personal beliefs, especially the religious ones that they use to ground society with. So this is where mm -hmm. it's going to happen, this little social revolution where we change people, you know, their hearts and minds so that they can uh, be better people and follow and learn to experience God, really. Because I think we have a very, um, you know, we have one spe specific type of way of experiencing God, but it's not all of God. Right. Oh my gosh, yes. That's so insightful. Gosh, Brooke, thank you for sharing your experiences <sighs> with us. We really, really appreciate your heart. You're welcome. I've, I've had fun crafting my thoughts. Thank you for giving me the, the platforms for uh, speaking about these things. It, it's really important to me. And yeah, I hope other people can learn and, and gain some knowledge that they need. Yeah. Thank you, Brooke. That is the end of part two of our interview with Brooke. You can find us on Instagram at holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N on Facebook at Holy Human Podcast. You can email email us if you would like to be involved and be an interviewee. Um, our email is holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com and all of our episodes with full transcripts are available at holyhumanpodcast.com. And thank you to Matib for our intro and outro music. We accessed it through freesound.org. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time on Holy Human Podcast.